morning, everybody. Great to be uh, with you all this morning. Um, you met me just a few minutes ago. If you have not before, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors, and it is great to be uh, in worship with you all this morning, whether you're uh, new to Restoration or a longtime member or here in person with us or watching online. We're thankful that you've uh, chosen to join us uh, this morning for worship. Now, because we took a little bit of time uh, praying for our graduates this morning and the kids that are moving up grades, and then we also did the community group spotlight, uh, I'm going to keep this short, and I'm also going to jump right in uh, to the text. We're continuing in our series on the Psalms of Ascent, and we're looking this morning at Psalm 130 uh, in the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 518. Uh, you can turn there or in your own Bible, uh, and I will begin reading for us in verse 1. This is Psalm 130. Out of the depth I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So, just like we jumped right in, the psalmist does not hesitate, jumping right to his main point. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Immediately, he catches our attention. He hooks us in. Because this word, depths, is not a common word, right? It's not, a, it's not a word we use for simple things. We all understand crying out from the depths. I've had mornings where I wake up and the very first thing on my mind, I can't even control it, is the depths that I'm in. Whatever those might be. Again, it's not an average word. It's not a word we use in everyday conversation. It's not a word we use for the normal, everyday difficulties. In fact, the Psalms use the, this particular version of the word only one other time, and that's in Psalm 69 when David is comparing his enemies surrounding him, trying to kill him, to being trapped in the depths of floodwaters that are seeking to drown him. Other parts of the Bible use the word to describe it as the deepest parts of the ocean that only God has access to. Ezekiel says that when a ship wrecks, it goes down into the depths. Isaiah says that when God parted the Red Sea, he revealed its depths. So the Bible consistently uses this word to talk about significant things. And we all can understand that. We've all had times in the depths. Maybe some of you feel like that this morning as you come to worship. You feel like you're in the depths right now. Whatever comes to mind for you, I know for me that when I read this this morning, I can't help but think of my college roommate. If any of you follow the news at all, you know a couple weeks ago there was uh, record destructive uh, flooding in eastern Kentucky. My college roommate lives in that area, in fact, right in the bend of a river that rose 21 feet above its normal 
height, which is five feet above the previous record from the 1950s. I saw on Facebook that there was a GoFundMe happening for him, so I wrote him a couple weeks ago to ask what was happening. He had escaped with his life, but had lost everything that he owns in this flood. I texted him again this week just to see how he was doing. And he said that even though the floods happened several weeks ago, he feels like the depths that, he are in, that he's in are never ending. Now he has to deal with the damage and the insurance. And uh, you know, he said his car was a total loss. It's ongoing for him. That's what I think of right now when I hear the word depths. I think of my friend losing everything he has. What comes to mind for you? What are the depths that you're in right now? Or when can you remember having been in the depths before? Feeling like my friend does that it's never going to end. Now sometimes like his story, we find ourselves in the depths from no fault of our own. The brokenness and sin of the world pulls us unwillingly into the depths. But there are also times when it's our own sin. It's our own brokenness that leads us into the depths. That's the case in this particular psalm. Verse 3 lets us know that these particular depths are a result of the personal sin of the psalmist. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, in other words, if you should record my sins, if you should record sins and keep a record of them, O Lord, who could stand? In fact, if you were listening well this morning, we've already talked about Psalm 130. We used it as our confession in the liturgy earlier. So maybe you're here, and it's not the, the brokenness of the world that has you in the depths. Maybe it's your own sin. So you're coming like the psalmist in the midst of your own guilt or shame this morning. However you're coming, whether it's the suffering and brokenness of the world or the shame and guilt of your own sin, even if you're not in the depths right now, maybe someone sitting next to you is or someone around you. Or maybe you're reminded of when you have been before or you're fearful of when you might next be. However you're coming, this psalm's for you because it offers us a way forward in the depths. It doesn't offer us uh, self-help remedies. It doesn't offer us cheap band-aids. It doesn't even offer us uh, theological textbook answers about suffering. Instead, what it offers us in the depths is relationship. It offers us a personal God to whom we can cry out, we can wait, and we can hope. Those are our three points this morning. We're going to cry out to God, we wait for him, and we hope in him. We'll look at each of those briefly. Look back again at verse 1. Notice how the psalmist begins, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I said earlier there's no hesitation in getting right to the point. And that's not just him writing so that he can get to the point with us. That's his prayer to God gets directly to the heart of things. I'm in the depths and I need mercy. 
He's not ashamed to cry out. He doesn't have to come up with a, a particular, the right kind of prayer formula to be able to approach God and get an answer. He doesn't tiptoe around how serious he feels about his trouble. He goes straight to the heart of it. I'm in deep, deep trouble, and you are the only one, Lord, that can help me. His request is loud. It's bold. It's full of desperation. You look at the words. He cries out. He pleads. He pleads with his voice for mercy. He wants to be heard. And his request, you may not have noticed this, is personal. Twice he uses God's personal name, Yahweh. Now we see that in our Bibles as Lord. But the word in the Hebrew is Yahweh. It's God's personal name. And so the psalmist is pointing to us where we need to start when we find ourselves in the depths. We start by crying out. To the personal God, Yahweh. Now what holds you back from that? I know for me, I'm hesitant to think that I can be that bold or that broken in front of God. Like I know theologically, yes, right? Like I'm broken. I can go before God. I can, uh, Jesus allows me to go to the throne boldly. Right? But in reality, when I'm actually in the depths, the voice in my heart says, no, actually, you've got to get things right first. Right? You've, got to, you've got to get things together. You've got to get out of the depths, especially if the depths, in my particular instance, are like the psalmist and they're from my own sin, their own, my own shame and guilt about my sin. Then I definitely think I've got to get this right first before I can go to God. So what about you? Where is it hard for you to cry out like this? To call on God by name and boldly ask for mercy even when you're in the midst of brokenness. If it is hard for you like it is for me, then I think verse 4 offers us an answer, a key to beginning to change that voice in our hearts. In verse 4, the psalmist says this. He says, but with you, there is forgiveness. The key for the psalmist being able to approach God in this way is that he knows Yahweh's character. He knows who Yahweh is. He knows that God is a God of forgiveness. He knows that he can go to Yahweh, that he can cry out for mercy because he's not going to be shunned. He's not going to be turned away from. He's not going to be rejected. He knows and has learned that God is going to be there waiting with open arms, with an invitation. And so for us, if God's prepared to mercifully receive even the psalmist from the depths of his own sin and shame and guilt, then how much more is he prepared to rescue us from whatever depths that we find ourselves in? And so it's the knowledge and the experience of God's character that enables us to cry out, that begins to change that voice that we hear in our hearts when we're in the depths.
And it's also how the psalmist is able to do what he does next. And that's our second point. He's able to wait on the Lord to answer. Look at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. He repeats that phrase about watchmen twice there. A watchman was someone that stood on the walls of a city or a fortification, and they watched through the night. They stood in the depth of the darkness, and they waited for the morning. They waited for the light. You know what a watchman doesn't do? A watchman doesn't make the morning come. His watching doesn't force the morning to come. He stands in the darkness and waits for something outside of himself to happen. But that's difficult. In fact, it's more difficult than even crying out. Waiting on Yahweh can be more difficult than even coming to him in the first place. Right? Because at least when I cry out, I have some sense of control. When, everything's else, when everything else is out of control, at least I have the agency of my own voice. It's my cry. It's my voice. It's my plea. It's my demand for mercy. But after that demand is over, the silence can be even more difficult. Having to wait. Having to have no answer to my cry talked earlier about how this passage doesn't offer us any self-help answers or any theological textbook answers about suffering. But the fact is, as much as we dismiss those in theory, we long for any kind of answer sometimes. Even if those answers are just another person coming alongside of us and being with us in the depths. And so being alone in the depths can be difficult. We long for someone to be out there, for someone to rescue us. Because if crying out indicates I need help, waiting means I'm entirely dependent on someone else's help. There's not, there's not even part way that I can go myself. I'm stuck. Helpless. We hate to be helpless. We hate the quiet. We hate when there are no answers. My kids cannot stand when they ask me something and I say, I don't know. Or wait a minute. Or not yet. What do you mean you don't know? Dad, get your phone out. Look it up. Google it. Right? And we laugh when our kids do that, but we do the same thing with God. Because waiting on God to answer is not just uncomfortable, it's infuriating, especially when we're desperate. Just this week, I prayed several times for an immediate answer to difficult things. God, I really, really need this to happen now. I've got to have an answer. This is the time, please, right now, I need an answer for this. Sometimes there was, 
Sometimes there was silence. This is not uncommon. We know that because here we are thousands of years ago with someone writing about the very same experience that I have this week. Crying out and waiting for an answer is the common experience of being a human being. So how are we able to do it? What, how are we able to continue on in the depths waiting for an answer? In the movie The Shawshank Redemption, there are two main characters, uh, Andy and Red. Both of them are in prison with life sentences. They become best friends during their decades in prison, but they disagree significantly about one thing, about whether or not it's good to have hope in the depths of their imprisonment. Red, who's rightfully imprisoned for a, a crime he committed, has accepted his life sentence. He's accepted his lot in life and that he believes to hold out any hope of anything different is to invite insanity. He says hope will drive a man crazy. There's no place for it on the inside. Andy, who's been wrongfully imprisoned, is unwilling to accept this fate. He holds out hope for ultimate redemption. Now, Andy finally escapes from prison. That's, I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, it's 30 years old at this point. Andy escapes from prison, and he writes a letter to Red. A few years later, Red is miraculously paroled, and he has a choice to make. He can, like many uh, previous prisoners who have gotten out late in life from a lifetime in jail, he could take his own life. Despairing about a world that he never expected to rejoin, unsure how to live in that world, depressed, alone. Or he can follow Andy's letter. Part of Andy's letter reads like this. Dear Red, if you're reading this, then you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a bit further. He then invites Red to come find him in Mexico. And the letter finishes with this. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. I'll be hoping this letter finds you and finds you well. This is the life that God invites us into. This is what the psalmist is promising to us. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist is saying there is hope in this world. The hope in God's promises of ultimate redemption coming one day. Hope that verse 5 tells us is found in God's word. Hope that verse 7 says is rooted in God's steadfast love. And so we live in a world where the extreme of human suffering is crying out and waiting alone in the depths. But the extreme of human flourishing 
God's steadfast love and plentiful redemption and promise of restoration. And the journey from the one to the other is hope. Hope that finds its power in God's promises. There is an answer to your cry in the depths. There is a voice speaking in the quiet. Do we have the ears to hear it? Do we have the ears to hear the hope of God's promises? You know, we don't gather here for worship every week or encourage you to have a daily Bible reading plan or invite you to Bible study or community group just because they're the right things to do. We do that because we want you as often as possible to be hearing and experiencing God's promises of hope every day in your life. Because what doesn't stop is the depths. They keep coming. And the silence keeps coming. It doesn't go away. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have troubles. But he also says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That promise of hope, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus himself are the living example of God's promises of hope to you. That's why we call the gospel the good news. It's that letter from Andy to Red offering hope that has the potential to change everything. The Shawshank Redemption ends with Red making the decision to hope. He gets on this bus and goes to see Andy, and this is how the movie ends with this monologue. He says, I find I'm so excited that I can barely sit still to hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. The gospel is hope. The gospel is the message of God that he will redeem, he will answer, he will pull you out of the depths. The silence will not last. That should inspire, like it does for Red, a supernatural excitement in your heart. Red says it's the excitement only a free person can feel. And Jesus says he came to set us free. So I hope it does that for you this morning. Let's pray and then come to the table. Fathers, we come to take your body and blood. We do pray that it would do its work in our hearts, that it would bring hope bring a supernatural excitement into our hearts, even in the midst of the depths that we would find in this meal a source of hope. In your name we pray. Amen.